What's going on? You're listening to The Peak Weekly, where we have conversations with the most interesting people in Canadian business. I'm your host, Brett Chang. Okay, so we're doing things a bit differently on The Peak Weekly now. We got some great feedback on our last episode, which if you haven't had a chance to check it out, you really should. It's a conversation with my co-founder, Alex Blumenstein, and I on The Peak's Year in Review. And with that feedback, we have decided to rethink the whole podcast. So instead of just covering the news, which you can get in our daily newsletter, uh, subscribe at readthepeak.com, we're going to do a deep dive into corners of Canadian business that you don't normally hear about. And so what that means is each week we're going to talk to the most interesting people we can find in Canadian business. We're going to learn about their journeys, their businesses, and hopefully get insights from these interviews that you can use to get ahead. And that's why I'm really excited to launch with this week's episode of the new Peak Weekly, where we're joined by our good friend, Chris Spoke. Chris is the co-founder of Spoke Capital. He's a hustler in the best sense of the word. And in this episode, we talk about how he broke into a new industry he knew nothing about, grew his network, built a digital agency from scratch, and then used the profits from that to start a real estate development fund. And we'll even give you tips on how you can get started in real estate investing yourself. We had a lot of fun recording this, and there's tons of value in this episode, and I'm sure you'll love it. But before we get into it, I do have one ask. If you like the new format of The Peak Weekly, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. We need more people to listen so we can keep doing this, and reviews are the best way for people to find out about us. So please, please, please leave a review. We really appreciate it. And without further ado, let's jump right into our conversation with Chris Spoke. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Peak Weekly, the revised Peak Weekly, the new and improved Peak Weekly. We have come up with a new format after an overwhelming response to our last one. By overwhelming, I mean 100 listens. Uh, and that's enough for us to change course entirely and go down a different route. But I'm excited for the podcast today. We are joined by Chris Spoke. And I'll let Chris introduce himself. But the topic of today's podcast is going to be real estate. And then we're also joined by my co-founder of the Peak, Alex Blumenstein. Hello, everyone. I, hey, Brett. It's it's actually good to hear that you only had a hundred listens on the last episode because I think I think we could break new records here. We can one we can break new records. Two also no pressure. A uh, very yeah, small totally. subset of the population and our reader base, and so uh, I think both work in your favor today. I was actually like going to say there's a lot of pressure because to break that record, it's totally dependent on you. So if we don't break the record, it means like we've actually, you've dragged us down from our baseline. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess if you, yeah, that's right. If you have a low baseline, um, it's not a good look if you don't break that. I think I, I think I was also the first profile on the newsletter. Is that right? You were. You're, you're what we refer to as low hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah, a bit of a guinea pig for us, but I, I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, and you know, just to give some context, and we were just talking about this before, but, you know, from Alex and I, uh, Chris is somebody who we've known for a while. Uh, we've invested with Chris into things. And the one thing that Chris has been a real evangelist on is a, is a breakthrough uh, investment concept called real estate. Uh, and it was something that Alex and I knew very little about. Alex had a bit more knowledge than I had because he made a real estate investment uh, for himself. But uh, Chris really introduced us to the world of real estate and helped us navigate it. And so I think that's what we kind of want to do today. But before we begin, I- I'd love to get a bit of your background, Chris, and-, and just talk about your experience with August and everything else you've done so far. Yeah. So I, I guess I'll talk about the last maybe three years because uh, it, just gets- it just gets messier the further back you go. Um, the last, the last 10 years is like a series of, of failed startups and, and like working a little bit in, in digital agencies and that sort of thing. Um, but more recently I started a digital agency. I did this with my, with my brother, um, where we build digital products for clients that might be startups or larger kind of enterprise, um, and even bidding on some, some kind of government or crown agency type work now. So typical digital agency model where we hire people at one price and then we kind of build them out at another. Um, and it's, it's cool. It's, it's a good way, I think, to make money. It's, um, you don't have to break any new ground in terms of innovation or product market fit. People need good software developers, they need good designers. So, so we're good at hiring and retaining them and we, we build them out. So um, I started a digital agency again a few years ago. Um, and then kind of not too long after starting it, I, I started getting more interested in, in real estate and real estate development. 
Um, so I started a, an event series talking about land use policy and how that affects prices. This was kind of on the, on the affordability angle. Um, but through that, I got to meet a lot of people in the industry. This is an industry that I was not exposed to. I didn't know many people in the industry, but I, I got to build a network. Um, and through that process, um, was offered a job to work as a development manager at a real estate development firm, um, in Toronto that builds condos and rental, um, and, and some in Montreal. So I, I took that job. I did that for the last two and a half years. I recently quit um, because, uh, well, one thing, the purpose was to learn. Um, and I think I learned a lot or at least enough to now want to kind of try my hand at, at doing um, some of these projects on my own. And you mentioned that like I have been doing some of these and, and you guys are investors in, in at least one of them. Um, so we could talk about that. But uh, to sum it up, I operate a digital agency. That's a nice way to kind of keep cash coming in uh, regularly. And that affords me the opportunity to, to try something more speculative or, or maybe more risky with real estate. I do yeah. want to start, I want to go back a bit just on to August uh, mm-hmm. and getting August off the ground. I know, I remember when you were doing this, it was about what, three years ago, two years ago. Um, how did you find that process and how did you find your first clients? Yeah. I mean, it started actually even before then, but as me just having a loose network of freelancers and then coming across people who needed projects done. So I did it at a very small scale. And what happened three years ago was formalizing it into a real company. Um, and my first client was, uh, was my brother, who's also my business partner. He uh, runs a, uh, a cryptocurrency company. Um, they're, they're, they're kind of shifting into some fintech stuff, but they were, they basically hired, hired a team to do a lot of cryptocurrency work on a public protocol that they launched. Um, but there was a need for them to build out the ecosystem of tools and, and like um, software libraries that would support their network. Uh, so some of our early projects were just doing that for him. Um, and then, and then through my own network of, I mean, again, because digital products is such a broad ca- category, you could find people in any industry at any scale of business that needs some help. Uh, so it's been a process of just kind of like mining my network and through there you get referrals and, you know, that sort of thing. Can I ask, uh, you know, you, you have been running this agency for three years while also having another full-time job. Um, and you've sort of used this agency to kind of pad your investments. Uh, and now you're taking the leap to have it kind of pay your salary uh, while you also pursue real estate full-time. How do you manage sort of that that split with having a full-time job and also running an agency, which I, I think a lot of people who run agencies will tell you is a full-time job? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I'll say that it's it's probably not the right way to do it. Um, <laughs> I think I think one of my like perpetual weaknesses is is uh, shiny object syndrome of like always jumping to the, to the new thing that I'm interested in. So like the digital digital agency was cool because it provided this freedom to, to work for myself and, and explore interesting projects. But then I got I got interested in real estate development and I did want to learn um, from, you know, someone who I think is is, you know, one of the more experienced and skilled real estate developers in the city. Um, so I hired a friend to 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 run it as a as a general manager. Um, and this is a friend who I've done a lot of work with over the last 10 years. So so it's basically handing off the day to day and then staying involved to the extent that I could while juggling these two things. Um, I think that that probably slowed um, our rate of growth and maybe sacrifice some of our upside potential because we weren't going all in. Um, but the optionality that um, I got in exchange, I think was, was worthwhile. I think I'll just say also, I think like client services is not the most exciting thing, even though I love digital products. I love tech. I don't love actually being in client services to the point where I'd want to devote my life to it. Um, I like the freedom that it provides by just kind of paying some of my bills. Sure. And I want to, touch a bit because we did this with Lee Forward as well. And this is kind of how we got into the cannabis industry, but you took a very similar approach with the events that you ran. Uh, and so you were running these meetups and then that brought together a bunch of people in real estate in Toronto. And mm-hmm. through that, you built up your network in that space. Is that something you'd recommend for other people to do? And do you think that's applicable to more than just, we did it in cannabis, you did it in real estate. So I guess it's applicable to any industry you wanted to use it for. I think so. I, I mean, I directly copied this from you guys. And I remember that very clearly where I didn't want to say that, but <laughs> yeah, no, I remember no. us having lunch at uh, Wilbur and saying, you should copy this. Yeah. And, and it, actually, th- that's exactly right. It was Alex said, and actually, I think you said you were going to run it for me, but, but that didn't happen. You I'm were going to be like, the, the, you were going to be like the event expert guy or whatever. 
Okay. Whatever. I'll Maybe I'm misremembering. I, I, I wasn't. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think it's like, and I think I underestimated its um, effectiveness even back then. But it's like a cheat code for inserting yourself into an established industry or an established network. Um, it's kind of like if you if you want to be cool enough to be invited to the party, but you're not so cool, just like host it, and then and then automatically you're cool enough. It's kind of like that. I think um, like people at many different levels of seniority and experience know me and I know them in real estate, despite having only worked in the industry for, for over two years. Um, I think it's, it's, it's like you said, it's applicable in many different contexts and even just events more broadly, more so than just like industry specific things. I've uh, through August hosted um, a lot of authors. I would read a book, find it interesting, cold email the author, knowing that they're probably on some publicity tour and then fly them out to Toronto to give a talk. And then through that, I get to know these like really cool high profile authors and everybody who follows them and is interested in their content. They also come. And again, I'm at the, the front of the room and, and introducing the author. So I think hosting events is uh, an underrated way to build profile and emerge from obscurity. I do want to just touch on that a bit. Uh it is really, anyone can do that. Anyone can go out there. And if you're interested in a certain space, whether it be real estate or cannabis or esports or um, the gaming industry, uh, you can go out there and you can start an event. You can find a topic that you think people might be interested in. You can build a list of people that you want to come to that event. If you invite them, some percentage of those people will show up. You can invite a speaker to make that event even more compelling. And if you cold email a bunch of very high profile or interesting speakers, one of them will likely agree to do it. And by doing that, it is the fastest way to build a network in whatever industry or space you want to do in. And I think, you know, we've done it, you've done it. And I, I really do think that anyone can do it. And it's a great way to just get started in something. And I think far too many people, they talk a lot about how they want to do this, or they want to do that, or they want to get involved in this industry and build their network. But this is one really good easy way, not necessarily easy, but a very accessible way to go out there and just get started. Yeah. I just come. Oh, sorry. Okay. I think this, I think this comes back to like something that we've all talked about like many times, which is like basically like the arbitrage of leg time between Canada and the United States, where it's like, mm. there's, 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 there's a difference in culture between Canada and the States where it's like in Canada, like if you just do something like host an event, you're a, a mover and a shaker, right? So, I mean, like it's, 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 it's quite easy to get off the ground and events are easy to do, like especially small scale, low cost ones. And you're, you're at the center, like Chris said, he's at the front of the room and it's like uh, a really super easy way. Yeah. And I think pairing it with cold emailing, which you also said, the cold yeah. emailing is a cheat code for life. You could reach almost anybody with a well-crafted, maybe with some persistence, but with a well-crafted email. Um, like I've gotten, um, I, I was going to book, uh, and had a commitment from Chip Wilson to come to Toronto for an event. Uh, the billionaire founder of Lululemon, who, who also uh, is a pretty cool guy. Um, but then COVID happened. So it happened, but they're like a number of people that we hosted were like high profile people that wouldn't have any reason to share thoughts with me or like have a conversation or a beer. Um, except for the fact that I invited them to speak in front of an audience. People have egos, right? Like that's like the best part too, which is that, you know, it's easy to get people to speak because people love audiences. Like look what we're doing right now. What are, totally. your, what are your cold email tips? Um, good question. I think, I think the first one is you need to really know and understand the person you're emailing. There's no like template that will work across a wide variety of people. So, I mean, this works well for me because I'm emailing for these events, people whose books I really like or people who I'm like personally a fan of. So I could, I could like find a nugget that probably most of their audience wouldn't catch, but because I'm so invested in the content, I will catch it. And I'll tell them like, I appreciate this thing that you said, or this opinion that you hold or this thing that you did. Um, so I think that's like, that's one thing. The, the second thing is probably keep it short. These are busy people. Um, and like get to the point, like I want you to come out to speak uh, uh, at an event and then like demonstrate some value. Like I'll, I'll make sure I bring out, you know, a big enough crowd to make it worth your time. Um, and then persistence and also just taking many shots. I mean, a lot of people I've cold emailed have not gotten back to me, but it's a costless exercise. You could send one good cold email per day. Um, and within a year, you'll get a lot of responses from a lot of high profile people. And then I want to take a jump from you hosting the events to then finding a mentor and landing a job in real estate. And I think this also reminds me of what Alex did too, which is he got into cannabis, 
you took a job at 48 North, uh, candy and cannabis LP, you kind of did the same thing. You had the event series, you met a bunch of people, use that to your advantage to find a job in the industry and then learn everything you could about it. What was that jump like? Yeah. Um, pretty serendipitous because it wasn't something that I was explicitly looking for. I was genuinely interested in this topic of land use rules and how they impact housing supply and how that impacts prices and affordability. Um, so through that, you know, I wanted to talk to people who knew more about this thing than I did. Uh, and a lot of those people were real estate developers. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of them would actually be kind of excited or at least happy that someone was taking this on, not in their capacity as, as an employee of whatever firm, but just out of, out of passion and interest. So, um, I don't know. I just had a lot of coffees with people who wanted to chat about their specific challenges with their, you know, real estate development projects or talk about, you know, we would, we would talk about how crazy the land use planning regime is in Toronto and that sort of thing. And through that, just building rapport and making friends and, and like my mentor, uh, and, and boss specifically, um, I wasn't looking for a job. August was, was going well. I was running these housing events. I was, I was interested, um, in doing more of that. And I got a text at like 10 PM on a Friday night or something. And it was, can I ask you something crazy? I'm like, okay, I wonder what this is. So I said, what, um, you know, you're obviously interested in this topic. Why don't you come work for me and learn, learn how to build this, build this stuff, build housing. So it was a pretty, pretty good pitch on his part, because I think it's one thing to talk about real estate and to get into the theory and, and, and that sort of thing. But, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of building and tinkering and actually doing the thing, executing, um, so that's, that's how it happened for me. I don't know if, if you want me to be more kind of general in like how to foster those sort of uh, relationships, but, but that's how it worked out for me. I, I, w- I would just ask if we can kind of like move along to, to the job itself. I mean, you, you got into real estate. That's still like, that can mean anything to me, right? Like what right. did you, what, what was your job? What did it actually entail? And what did you actually learn doing it? Yeah, so um Development manager for a, I would say medium-sized real real estate developer in Toronto, um, with five buildings across three projects currently in some stage of development. Um, when I got there, all three of these were at like the early stages of planning. Um, so for me, it was a lot of interfacing with the city and going through first a rezoning and then a site plan approval process. Um, so that's just you know without without getting into that. Too much. It's basically coordinating a team of consultants, designers, architects um, to produce reports, studies, and drawings um, to basically present what what it is you want to build, and then get comments from the city and, and address those comments. And you have to do this kind of back and forth a few times. Um, but it's it's a small enough shop that I dabbled in a bit of everything. So a lot of that sort of thing, which is which is called the entitlements process but also kind of getting into the sales and marketing. Um, so on, on the condo front, we, we had, we had, you know, sales center that we had to staff, we had a broker that we were working with, we had to track condo sales as they sold. And then now more recently, there's a marketing effort around some rental projects that are nearing completion. So there's a different approach. Um, and then what, what I, what I didn't get so involved in, um, but, but I did have some exposure to was the actual construction side of things. Um, so one of my colleagues who I work with, uh, has more of a construction background. I know, I know nothing, literally nothing about construction. I would, I would ask questions by the way, on all these things. When I first got there, that would be, you know, that they were like embarrassed to hear me ask these questions because it, because they were so, I was so inexperienced, um, but very rapidly got up to speed. And now like, I'm trying to do that with, uh, on the construction side. So I don't know a bit of everything is the short sure. answer. Do, do you, I think a lot of people would hear that story and be very intimidated by, the whole process. So you went from having a digital agency to hosting events, to finding a mentor in the real estate industry who then hired you for a space that you had no previous experience in. When Mm. you started that role, how did you approach it going in so cold? So one thing that I did have going into it was I actually understood, I think, I understood land use planning as well as like an averagely trained planner, urban planner. Um, and a lot of urban planners fill these roles as development managers. So like I've read the zoning bylaw, I've read the official plan. I've talked to a lot of people about different considerations. I've read the, like the relevant provincial legislation. Um, and if you just do that thing, like actually read the material, which most people don't do, 
um, you're already pretty, pretty far ahead. Um, so I did have that. What I didn't know was like anything else, like how do real estate development projects get financed? Um, and then again, like anything construction related, I had no idea. So um, it was a matter of just uh, asking a lot of questions and they weren't always questions that could be answered internally. But as a real estate developer, you're, you're typically working with a small team, but with a lot of external consultants, including planners and municipal lawyers, cost consultants and that sort of thing and a construction manager. So you have access to specialists in every domain um, that you need to know. So just asking a lot of questions. Yeah. And so that's, if you wanted, if somebody wanted to get, and so let's kind of take it more broadly speaking now, where, what do you, what opportunities do you see in the Canadian real estate market right now? And mm -hmm. how, if you wanted to get involved in real estate in some investment capacity, what recommendations would you offer that investor? Well, I'll say what I'm doing now, now that I'm, I'm kind of transitioning out of, of, uh, of that role. Um, I, I find it's hard to give advice because there are a lot of variables and, and everyone's kind of either investment horizons or um, like financial positions are, are different. So I'll say, I'll say what I'm doing. And I think probably some of this could be extrapolated, but um, I'm focusing on two things to begin with. One is land assemblies. Um, so what land assemblies are, uh, are when you buy or tie up under contract a number of congruent um, properties next to each other um, in the hopes of then kind of packaging these as a development site that could support something of higher density and then, and then either selling it to a developer or taking it through the entitlement process, the rezoning process, and then selling it to a developer. Um, so I think that's very in interesting. I think if you look at the life cycle of real estate development, a lot of the value lift is created at that point when you're taking, for example, a project that we're working on seven detached houses um, and, and, you know, buying them all uh, and then selling them to a developer who could build, a 35 to 40 story uh, high rise building, a lot of that value is created through that process because the value of a detached house, even seven detached houses is far lower than the value of a real estate development site that can support that density. Um, so I'm doing that. We're, we're doing, you know, we're exploring a few projects right now. There's one that you guys uh, are involved with and it's going well enough that it's, it's kind of encouraged me to do more of it. Um, and because I think that one thing I do know relatively well is land use planning. I think that that's my edge is kind of knowing where policy is changing to accommodate higher density. Um, so, so that's one thing. Um, I, I'll say like one downside of doing that is first of all, it's, it's like not a very predictable model. You can't say with any degree of confidence that you could do like one of these a year or one of these every 18 months. It's very opportunistic. Um, and you have to take a lot of shots and a lot of them might not go anywhere. Um, and then the second downside is you're selling the asset. So ultimately you're getting hit by a big tax bill. Um, you're either getting hit by corporate income tax plus dividends or, or personal income if you're flowing it through a partnership. But either way, you're probably losing like 40% of the value at the sale. So that's not great. Um, so the second category, the second bucket is like multifamily. Uh, and this is something I put a, an offer actually on a property yesterday and found out today that I didn't get it. But I'd like to build um, multifamily of eight units plus um, and then do it in a way where we could um, at takeout, at the takeout financing, when you get your mortgage at occupancy, take out as much of the equity that we put in and own it forever and have an appreciating asset that doesn't get taxed, that doesn't get sold, that just kind of cash flows. Do you think you break down the economics of both of those a little bit further? I mean, like... We're, we're somewhat familiar with the assembly deal. So, but for obviously for the listeners, like I think it's like, it's really interesting kind of how you set it up in that there's not as much cash down required uh, as, as one would think. So can you kind of walk through like each step in the process and like the, the capital requirements for it? Yeah, and I, so, I had never heard of assembly yeah. deals until Chris brought it to our attention. This was something that was very foreign to me, but it is a practice in the industry that many people do. Yeah. I mean, it's also, it's, it's hard cause I don't know who's listening. So, so um, it's hard to know like to what level of expertise I should speak to, but. Assume um, people don't know what this is. Yeah. I mean, 
the hack that you refer to, or I call it a hack, the reason why returns could be um, really good is because anybody who's bought a house, you, what, do, you, you what's know What's really this, good? Like, let's, 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 like, what, what's Yeah, the yeah, yeah, okay. Let's, let's be well, specific. Well, first, I'll just explain the process okay. of buying a property. So anybody who's bought a house has gone through something like this, where you put an offer on a property, let's say for a million dollars, but you put... It, within that offer, some conditions. You want to check your financing. You maybe want to do an inspection of the house. You have some other conditions that you want to satisfy before you firm up with that deal. So you might ask the vendor for five days, for 10 days, for you to um, satisfy these conditions. They'll ask you to put a deposit down, typically 5% of the purchase price. So maybe like 50 grand on a million dollar house. And then that affords you five days within which that deposit is refundable. Um, so if you find something you don't like, or you're not able to get financing, your bank turns you down for a mortgage, you could walk away, your deposit is refunded, you don't lose any money, and you know, on you go. Um, if you go past that conditional date, when you, when you waive your conditions, um, then your deposit gets locked in. Um, there might be a one, two, or three months closing period where you don't actually have to pay for the house until the closing date. But if anything happens post waiving your conditions, pre-closing, um, where you don't close, you you at minimum lose your deposit. So what's cool about assemblies, and I'll I'll say specifically this one assembly that we're doing together, is because um, because there's so much of a lift from the current use of that land to what's potentially buildable, we're able to offer way above market for the houses. So how do you convince seven specific people, right? They have to be seven people in a row. They can't just be seven people in the neighborhood, seven specific people who had no thoughts of selling their house to sell their house on a relatively short timeline. You have to offer them like a lot of money to make it worthwhile. So we're able to offer way above um, the market price for their house, um, which motivates them to sell. But what it also does, it affords us the ability to ask for a much longer conditional period. So we might ask for like a six months conditional period. Whereas like five days might be typical for, for buying a detached house or something like that. And it's fine because these people aren't planning to sell their house. So yeah, they're no rush. Exactly. Yeah. To them, it's like a costless option where if things go well, they get this way above market price for their house. And if it doesn't, they just keep living in it like they were anyway. Um, and then so what we're doing in this case is within those six months, let's say, we want to, one of our conditions is that the sale only goes through if we get all seven of these houses and we outline you know, the addresses. Um, but within those six months, we also sell it. We also sell the deal. Um, so you put in a clause in your agreement of purchase and sale saying that you could assign the sale. So within those six months, you buy them, or at least you tie them up under contract within a conditional period. You find someone who's interested in it. They're going to pay something close to the value of the land as a development site, um, because that's, that's the value you're generating for them. And then you assign the contracts to them and you make the difference between what you paid and what they paid. You never close on the properties and you've only put down a deposit. So the hack is that you're effectively levered up like maybe 10 uh, to 20 X because the deposit is, is like 5% of the, the purchase price. It might even be lower than that if the price is high enough. So um, like your, your multiple on your actual cost basis could be pretty high. Something I've always wondered is why can't the developer who is buying the contracts from you, why can't they go out and do this on their own? Yeah, I mean, one reason is because that's just not what they do. There's value created at every step of the development process. And there's, there is some value in specializing and getting really good at one thing. Um, I think you could go out and try 10 assemblies and have like one of them work out. So it's a lot of legwork. It's a lot of brain damage. You're often dealing with like unsophisticated sellers who have unrealistic demands or, or whatever. Um, so you deal with, with a lot of crazy things. We, in our assembly, as you know very well, we had like one of the owners after verbally agreeing to a deal uh, die of a drug overdose um, with no will or, obvious, uh, or obviously known beneficiaries. So now we're like becoming experts in the estate administration process. So a lot of things could go wrong. So I think it's just, it's just not worth their time. Um, they buy sites at the at their value as development sites, and then their lift comes from the development management fee that they get paid for managing that development, and then you know whatever upside they they create through the process. It's really interesting, and like I said, it's a crazy business. But when you explain it like that, it makes a lot more sense to me. Where I understand that we kind of got lucky on this first one a bit, in that things kind of just lined up, or it looks like they're lining up, 
And so at your first you know, time up at bat, you hit a home run and it's not going to always happen that way. And I think you're right. There are so many variables to this about convincing everyone on the street to sell their house, about having everyone sign the paperwork, dealing with the negotiations for each house and making sure you find a price that you can pay, understanding that that plot of land has value long-term, that it can be redeveloped at a certain density. Uh, all of these are specialties that you have to develop and have. And so there is a skill set there that a normal developer might not, or just might not want the headache of it. And so it's just really interesting to hear you talk about it. And it was a totally different business that I never even thought of until you brought it to me. And it's just, uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's pretty cool. That's, that's yeah. what I'd say about that. Well, and it also, it wasn't really the first at bat. It was the first at bat that gained any traction. So I've knocked on doors and sent letters to homeowners like many times. If I've seen something that looks like a cool assembly and I've like scrolled through geo warehouse or Google maps many times to find what I thought would be cool assemblies. So I've done a lot of that, but this is the first one where when it started working, it just kept working. Do you, do you have um, any idea why, like what, what sort of worked this time? Was it luck or was it anything you did? Um, I think, I think one factor that worked in our favor is that there are very few sites. Um, so I don't want to like give too many specifics. I don't want people to kind of bombard this neighborhood because I want to, I want to do some more mining, but um, yeah. it's, it's near a new uh, transit station. Um, and the introduction of a transit station could be pretty transformative for a neighborhood. So this is a neighborhood um, today that is not yet gentrifying, let alone has it not been gentrified? Um, so the value of the houses are relatively low by Toronto standards. Um, it's also very low density. There are no obvious comps in terms of like recently built uh, condos or even new rentals. So you had this these seven houses that were small detached houses in a not so great neighborhood. And at some point in the near future, you will have a 35 to 40 story brand new um, condominium, you know, close to a brand new subway station. So that that change in context is pretty rare. Um, and uh, I think what worked out is because that change is so drastic, we could afford to offer even more for their house, like more above market than an assembler typically would. An assembler might go with the general rule of offering 20 to 30% above market, which might not be enough to get everybody you need off the fence we were able to offer more than 30% above market. So it, it was motivating in that way. Cool. Um, I want to talk about the construction side of it for a bit too. Um, hmm. You know, my understanding, or I think what intimidates me when it comes to these construction projects is building stuff. I have no context about how to, well, one, I'm terrible with my hands. I can't build anything. I can't even put together Ikea furniture, let alone rebuild a house. Uh, but uh, you, and I think we can talk about your Vancouver property, you were successful at this. You bought a house, you did a bunch of construction work, and you flipped it, and you made money off of that. And again, you had no construction background yourself. So how did you pick all that up? Because there are a lot of moving pieces, and many things can go wrong. Totally. That's, this is an easy thing to do. Have a brother who's a super handy project <laughs> manager at PCL, um, and then ask him to manage the whole thing, uh, which, is, which is how I did it. I'm, I'm like you. On it, and you could it's ask genius. Me, my, my wife who's here, like Ikea drives me nuts. I can't, I, I like, I hate it. I hate holding screwdrivers. Um, and like more than disliking it, I also just don't know anything. Even if I were good at it, I just don't know anything. Um, I find talking to construction guys often intimidating. There's like a cultural yeah. difference. And, uh, and uh, I, I, it would not work if There's I was also doing this. Just information you. asymmetry mm -hmm. in that they know more than you. And so they can tell you whatever they want. It's like getting your car repaired. I have no yeah, idea. The dentist. I, well, I don't know what it's like to get my car repaired at all because I don't drive, but the dentist is probably more accurate, but yeah. it's, you know, they can tell you that your brake pads need replacing and you have no idea if that's true or not. And so you trust them at their word and standing yeah. with these construction guys, when you're doing one of these big house rental projects is that they'll say, oh, we've got to redo the foundation or we've got to install new piping. And who am I to say no to that? That sounds important. I don't know. And so let's just do it. Totally. I, I, I've, I've said that like I've spent the last 10 years learning how to speak with software developers and like question their assumptions and call them on their bullshit when, when necessary. And also just kind of like provide ideas and feedback. Um, and it's kind of like learning one language and, and now I'm in a different country and there's a whole new language that I don't know. That's, that's kind of how it feels. Um, no. So I definitely wouldn't manage um, construction projects on my old 
I would, I would, I would totally get ripped off. It'd be above, uh, above budget. It would be, it would be above our timeline. Um, just, that uh, wouldn't work. So, just a side note here. I'm gonna pitch you guys on a business. What do you think about Rosetta Stone for industries? So if you <laughs> if you're doing a home reno and you want to uh, make sure that nobody's ripping you off, you take uh, you take an online course to you know know the lingo, right? To to speak that. I mean, do the same thing for for car car repairs. Maybe dentistry. Uh, I don't think it's the lingo though. I think it's like you can know, you can talk the talk, but if I can't diagnose if I have a, if I need a root canal or not, it doesn't really yeah. matter. That's yeah. true. But yeah. there's a, there's a level of respect you get from uh, knowing the words. Yeah. Well, one thing I found because because it's exactly what Brett said. Like I'll, I'll give you a scenario that I was in recently at work. Um, some work needed to be done um, on a piece of land that was behind some hoarding with overhead protection. And we told the contractor that we could remove the hoarding, but the overhead protection had to fit um, and they had to get their equipment, you know, through whatever space was available. Um, and he kept saying, you know, this is impossible for X, Y, Z reason. And I was standing next to my colleague who knows construction, not knowing how to react like, oh shit, do we have to take down this overhead protection? Cause he said it wouldn't fit. And my colleague would just say, well, no, we can't take it down. Well, it won't fit because of this. Yeah, but we can't take it down. Well, what about this? No, no. And just he just kept saying no until the contractor found a solution, right. <laughs> which I would I would have never thought to do. I would have like conceded immediately. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that where I also I, I don't think there's a ton of value in spending too much time bolstering these weaknesses if you do have strength in other domains. So I'd rather just get really good at identifying good real estate deals and maybe taking them through the entitlement process and then having someone like my brother or someone else I trust, uh, manage construction. So why so, in this case, sorry, go ahead, Alex. I was just saying, why in this case, uh, do you not want to hand it off to your brother to develop the land? Like why not take that next step, raise a ton of capital and go for it? Yeah. Two, two reasons. Um, the first reason is, is he lives in Vancouver and my other brother and I have spent the last two years, uh, trying to convince him to move back because we, we feel like we'd, we'd have a really nice little business if he did, but he doesn't want to. The second reason is um, because we we put a lot of money into this Vancouver project that you mentioned, which which was basically buying a detached house, knocking it down and building um, a duplex with, with some basement suites. Because we put a lot of money in that, we didn't have all the money we needed for this assembly to complete the assembly on our own. So we brought in some friends, including you guys, um, who have different like investment horizons. So the expectation is to, is to do the flip as we described it. I think that if we had done it on our own, we would have rolled whatever value created into a project as equity and, and try to stick around um, through the whole process. Uh, but, but those were like the two reasons why we did it. Other than investing in a spoke capital project, which I would recommend for anyone who's listening, if there's ever space available, what advice would you give to someone what's like a first step into real estate investing that they can take today if they have the cash that you think would provide a good return or would be a good long-term asset to hold short-term? I don't know, whatever. What do you think that first step is? Yeah. Um, well, the first thing I'll say is that um, I've seen like people say this on Twitter and I think it's true. I, I also just as a general preface, I don't want to overstate my experience or knowledge or anything like that, but I think that it's hard. I think that if you want to get into real estate, first of all, you should be making money and you should have money. Um, it's not, it's not the best business to try to, you know, make your first amount of money in. Um, you really are able to go a lot farther and compete with well-capitalized people by at least having some money. Um, so the first thing I would say is if you don't have money, if, if this is like a younger audience, I would say start a business, maybe start a service business, which is what I did and make some money. Um, and then in terms of like what or specifically have a job and keep your job, like, I, I, I think it's, this is a different conversation, but it's like underrated. If you have a good paying job, let that compound and make money too. You don't need to quit your job to make money to get into another business, but sorry, go on. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I mean, I, I get your point. What I like about having a business is the upside is a little less capped. Mm -hmm. Um, and what you're also able to do as a business owner is delegate away the things that you're either not good at or don't like, sure. um, or that take up too much of your time. So if, if the goal here is to like branch into a whole new domain, for me, it, it's like awesome that I could spend like 20% of my time on a service business that pays me full time. And that also generates some earnings that we could play around with. Um, and I, I, I think most jobs don't, don't give you that. Um, but yeah, you could have a, another debate with other people about whether you it's should encourage young people into starting businesses. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, the, this, the second thing I said um, that I that I'm doing now is looking for properties um, that could accommodate just small scale multifamily rental. Um, there's this general tonal shift in Toronto where, uh, because of the housing affordability crisis, um, the city's starting to open up to what's called missing middle housing types. So this is anything that's higher density than a detached house. So starting with like a semi-detached all the way up to something that is just, just short of a mid-rise building. So, so things like triplexes, fourplexes, a row of townhouses, stacked townhouses, walk-up apartments, those sort of things are, have not been built in, in large numbers since like the war because uh, zoning didn't allow for it, but that's starting to loosen up a little bit. So what I'm trying to do now is find good properties um, with houses that could be torn down and new small-scale multifamily could be built. Um, and the way this works really well is if you're able to do it in a way that you could take whatever equity, whatever cash you put in at the, at the front end, if you're able to take it all out at the back end, when you get what's called your takeout financing based on the new value of this asset you've created, um, that's awesome because then you own this asset, it generates cash and you took all your money back to do it again. Um, so that's, that's what I'm going to be like. Th I like the assemblies to make um, some, some like cash windfalls opportunistically, but in terms of like a predictable, repeatable business model, it'll be a lot more of that. And you mentioned you read a lot of the legislation around planning and you got really deep into the space. Are there resources that you would recommend somebody who is an aspiring real estate investor go through and, and research before they make that move? Yeah, I think, I mean, you should definitely be familiar with the relevant legislation. So municipally, you should read the zoning bylaw. You should read the official plan. You should understand them. Um, provincially, uh, you should read the relevant legislation, which could be things like the Planning Act, um, or like the provincial policy statement, there's all these, there's all these documents, but you should also track what's changing. Cause a lot of the opportunity comes in the changes. Um, so for example, um, Doug Ford's provincial government fairly recently, um, changed, uh, the development charges act so that a secondary unit in your house is no longer subject to a development charge. And it's like not a huge change, but it opens up now, like, the economic feasibility for a lot more secondary units throughout the city. And, and that, that is a business opportunity. So I think it's about like knowing the current um, state of affairs, but also tracking where and how it's changing. Um, and then I, I guess, I guess on top of that is also infrastructure improvements and expansions. So our assembly is large, like the value is largely being driven by new subway construction. Um, so like be, be aware of that, like, like what is Metro Lakes up to, where are they planning to build? And, uh, maybe that could unlock some opportunity. I'll also say that um, one thing I'm going to build because I think it needs to exist is like a development for dummies um, notion page. So there's all these very specific processes that you have to do through a development project, which could be as, um, as like small scale as conveying a piece of land for a, for a park to the city um, that there's no good resource on like, how do you do that? Like usually this knowledge is tacit within development firms and it's passed on from like senior staff to, to junior staff. Um, but I think it would be cool to centralize a lot of this knowledge and make it available to more people. So you should also follow me on Twitter at Chris Boak and wait for that to launch and then, uh, and then check it out. And any books? Yeah, I think, I think books. So what I'm talking about on the policy side is like knowing um, the regulatory constraints you might face, but yeah, in terms of like being a good investor and being good at identifying deal flow and even how to structure investment relationships. Like we went through this whole exercise of setting up a quasi GP LP um, structure uh, for the assembly, but you should just read like a ton of real estate investment books. What I also like are biographies because um, I find the mechanics could often be taught or learned through the process, but it's really, it's really the, like the art of real estate investment is, is harder to prescribe. So I like reading biographies and seeing how other people thought about this asset class or thought about various asset classes within real estate. Um, that's been helpful for me. What's your favorite one? My favorite real estate biography is probably Risk Game, um, which uh, what the, guy, the guy's name was Frank. I actually forget his last name, but he runs Time Equities, Inc., um, in Manhattan and uh, has had a, a long storied career. He was also an equity partner on the Thompson Hotel in Toronto, which people might know about. Uh, another one that's very good is Sam Zell. It's called, 
fuck, what's it called? Uh, I don't know. Search Sam Zell and his, his most recent book. And he's another guy who just bought multifamily and built a big portfolio over time. Cool. I, I think we only have about 10 minutes left and not to make this all about ourselves, but it kind of is all about ourselves. Uh, I would love to get your thoughts on this podcast and what we should do with it. Cause it's something that I think, uh, and you know, for context, we go to Chris with lots of questions about our business because Chris always has very good ideas and insights to give to us. And so on this podcast specifically, we're revamping it. I, I think that the model we were doing before where I would just read the news was too similar to the newsletter. Uh, mm -hmm. and there was too much overlap. And so I think where we're going now is that the newsletter will give you, keep you informed on what's going on in Canadian global business. And then this podcast will narrow in on certain aspects of Canadian business where you can learn more about. I think this podcast was very useful to anybody who wants to learn how to grow their network, break into an industry. They kind of learned broad strokes about real estate. They heard about your thesis around real estate. They have some ideas of trends in Canadian real estate. That's all very good. Where do you think we should take this podcast? Yeah, I think what's interesting to me, if I'm if I'm extrapolating from this one episode, which is the only one I know, is is providing these little spotlights into different um, industries or expertise or whatever. Um, I think this is not just relevant to young people, but it's it's certainly relevant to young people. But I think people don't quite grasp just how many ways you could win, you know, at, at the game of life professionally. Um, there's so many things that you could do, even within real estate, you could take this 40 different ways, right? And I'm, I'm trying to, and we'll see how it goes. But I think it, it'd be super interesting to just find people who are doing quirky things and maybe even the more niche, the better, um, because it, it reveals a little bit of how the world works and how people make money. And, and uh, I think that's kind of a valuable, interesting thing. I can't stress that enough. And that's the advice that I give to every student that I talk to is don't narrow your path. When I was in university, everybody I knew was either going to law school, doing some type of grad school because they were deferring their decision of what they wanted to do professionally, or they were going to teacher's college. Those were the three paths available to anybody who had a arts degree like myself or like Alex, or yeah, I don't even know what you did, but uh, like economics, economics. Okay. Well, it's better, but uh, <laughs> like any of us, you know, there was very uh, clear paths that you were almost pushed into. And I mm. think now with hindsight and having exposure to more of the world and how it works and business, you're exactly right that there are so many things that you could do. You know, if I could go back in time, would I have gone to what I've chosen to go to law school because I wanted to be a sports agent? Maybe. Uh, but I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't know how to be an agent. I didn't know you needed a right. law school degree for that. And so I think you're right that just exploring different corners of the Canadian business world will be informative to not just young people, but anyone, because it just gives them more exposure to what's out there and what opportunities are available. And that there's so many different paths to win, like you said, at the, at the game of life. So I think that's a, I think that's yeah, great I, advice. I also think there's, there's obviously a lot of value in interviewing and, and learning from people who have already won. Um, and that's what, you know, most biographies and even most podcast interviews, that's the sort of people. Um, and I think that's definitely valuable, but I think it's also interesting to, talk to people who have had some success, but are, but like, you know, are not nearly complete their journey and, and are trying to figure out the next step. Cause then you get an insight into the current thinking and you can even check in on it, you know, down the road. Um, that's certainly where I am. And even when I read biographies, I like, that's probably my favorite uh, genre of books. I almost get like, I almost drop them one third of the way in. I want to know a little bit about their early life, how they started their business, how they got to their first level of success. And then the rest of it, like when they went from being, you know, a centimillionaire to a billionaire and, and retired and, and a philanthropist, that's not so interesting. I want to know, you know, what that first steep, you know, climb up, up the, up the curve looked like. Yeah. I think that's what Alex and I try to do with our building in public stuff, which is, you know, we're kind of going through the same process and uh, it's not clear. Uh, it's definitely not clear to us where we want to take this or what direction to go or how we grow it or how we keep, keep, keep people engaged. And it's helpful to just be open and transparent about it because then we solicit feedback from the crowd. And so we hear directly from our readers and our listeners about what they like and what they didn't and how we can improve. And that directly informs where we take this, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is the most productive way to build a business because you're not guessing anymore. You're going directly to your customers, in this case, our, our readers, and you're hearing from them, you know, what do they want us to do? And if we take it down that route and we fulfill what they've been asking for, I think it's just a recipe for success. It's also more interesting, um, which probably feeds into that success.
Yeah. And I think what's also just kind of neat about talking to Chris on your, on your come up, we'll say is that like, uh, we can check in, you know, a couple of months later and actually see if you've uh, succeeded, right? Like, you know, you're doing this mm-hmm. first assembly and it's like going really well so far, but like knock on wood, it could mm-hmm. totally fall apart, right? Um, and I think people are sort of, you know, more honest uh, on the way up and when they're trying to see see if it'll work out. And like, you also don't have kind of the, uh, you have nothing to bullshit, right? You don't have customers or clients really. So it's just kind of us. Neat, uh, yeah, just us. So <laughs> kind of a neat conversation that way. Yeah, I think there's a risk. Uh, I don't know if you like Nassim Taleb, one of my favorite authors, but he came up with the narrative fallacy. No, don't love him. I came up with the narrative <laughs> narrative fallacy, which is like you talk to entrepreneurs, you know, who have made it. And then when they talk about how they got to that point, it's always like a very clean path and clean yeah. line. Like Elon Musk says, when I was in university, I was fascinated with electric cars, exploring yeah. space and, and solar power. And it's like, really, were you? Or did you kind of like stumble into something that worked? Um, so I think talk- it's good. Sorry. Is that? Well, I'm just saying, like, it, it's good to like thoughtfully and actively try to avoid the narrative fallacy. All of our lives are way messier than even we like to admit to ourselves. Um, and I think that it's, it's like refreshing when other people hear that. I was just going to say, we could talk for two hours, uh, three hours, each of us on uh, all the businesses we've started and failed at, right? Totally. Like, we all have uh, a long list under our belts. Yeah. 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 Maybe that should be an episode. <laughs> to just have these conversations in the open too. I mean, it's like just putting it out there is uh, helpful for your thinking. I think so. Yeah. And it's, it's like, that's how life goes. It's not like a clean path. I mean, yeah. maybe there's a career track where you're a corporate lawyer and you make your way up from mm-hmm. associate to partner, but especially if you're doing anything entrepreneurial or risky, it's always going to be a mess. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Okay, Chris. Well, you know, we didn't tell people, but we are doing this. This is a bit of the peak at night right now. Uh, Chris has, Chris, unlike Alex and I has a family. And so he puts the kids to sleep and those are, those are prime podcasting hours for him. So we took him at his prime podcasting hours. We got him at his best. Uh, but for Alex and I, I know Alex in particular, looks good. Way past my bedtime. Way well, past the bedtime. At 3 a.m. to write the newsletter that goes <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's, uh, I know it's past his bedtime, but look, Chris really appreciate you doing this. I thought that was very interesting. I thought it was interesting you know, we talk all the time and we've been talking for years and just even hearing the stuff that we've talked about and getting into more details and asking questions about it, I thought was super interesting and insightful. So thank you so much for, for coming on. And like Alex said, I think we want to make this a, a recurring thing. And so we'd love to do a, a infrequent check-in just to see how things are going and, uh, and get all your opinions on, on what's going on in the world. Totally. I, I need an accountability partner. So it'll be this, this podcast. And the peak yeah. listeners. And the peak listeners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you can get mad at Chris if he doesn't follow through on his commitments. Yeah. Thankfully for you, Chris, I don't think there's been many commitments on this podcast, but you know, you yeah. can start thinking about them now. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks for having me. Cool. Okay. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Chris. Okay.